Folks, this is a great review that I just love about Fun Parts. And because it's kind of fun to do, I want to read it in my Fun Parts After Dark voice. Hey there, listeners. This is a review titled, Thank You, All Caps, Five Stars. This podcast is pivotal in the total deconstruction and reconstruction of faith. It gives so many enlightening and thought-provoking ideas and scenarios that help you to discern your way through years. I'm talking years of misinformation. <laughs> oh, that's such a great review. Thank you, you, whoever got, this person is. Thank you, Maria Rachel Smith. <laughs> Maria Rochelle Smith. Sorry for reading your voice in a very sultry Randy accent. Voice. And Randy. But really, you guys help us help you <laughs> help us by leaving a review anywhere you listen to this podcast that'd be great we had a question you know we did this live event and there was a question that came in that i thought was really really beautiful but it was late in the evening so we didn't really get to dive in i feel like we would have dived in Dove, dove in. Dove. Dove. Dave, Dave in, yeah. Dove in. We would have gone deeper with this question. We would have spent more time with it. And I thought maybe we could explore it a little bit here. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts, an exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your host, Becky Patton, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, Luke Bronner, and me, Latifa Alatas. Someone asked, like, why is it that the particular types of trauma that we talk about on the show or the experiences of people, why do so many people have so much pain in this particular area of their life? Why is it so prevalent? Sexual harm, sexual trauma, sexual repression, all of this that we talk about. Hmm. If we could just answer that real quick, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll just, this will be like a, a quickie. <laughs> you know, I think that question first, it's just pausing and holding the pain. Over the years of doing this, one of the things that I repeatedly, I've come to realize is there's no place I ever go, no room I enter, that there's not already pain there waiting mm. for me to notice. And I think why sexual pain is so prevalent and the trauma of it is so big is because for so long we've not had permission to talk about it. And so therefore it gets pushed down further. Like if I cut my hand, it's obvious. You can see that pain. If I have a broken arm, you can see that. And when there's sexual pain, I think that so much of it is happening deep, like we talk about the inside stuff, there's something that's going on internally while we're having an external experience. And that internal, if we're not in tune with ourselves and we're not in tune with our emotions, we aren't really in tune with what's going on inside of us. And I know years and years and years ago, I found a Kama Sutra book that was at a I don't know, was it a garage sale or someplace? I don't, I don't even do garage sales, but I found it somewhere. I remember in this box and it was down hidden underneath and it was tattered and it was torn. And I was like, huh? <laughs> I'm like, oh. 
Somebody really used this. Yeah. But mm. I was intrigued by it, and I remember I took it. It was I took the book, and I began to read about some of the origins of like positions, but origins of Kama Sutra and stuff like that. And it was so like language I'd never heard of before. And it intrigued me. And then I realized I'm holding something that was instructive to somebody else. And I began to question myself and go, what does my instruction manual look like? And I realized the only instruction manual I'd ever had was from the Christian church. And it's so much of it was about don't. And so much in this book was about curiosity and exploration and wonder and noticing the marvelous responses of the body. And I thought, I don't have that language. So I think why there's so much pain is because we haven't been taught language to be of attentiveness to ourselves so that we can actually truly be attentive to another. And I think that's basic core in the scripture is to love yourself first. And in loving yourself, you're going to, it's going to spill, you're going to love others. And in turn, loving others is truly, if the light of God is in all of us, that's loving God. So I just, I think there's so much hidden because we don't have, haven't been given permission to be attuned to the responses of our own body. So when we feel desire, oh, that's shame or that's lust. So I have to shut that down. When I feel attracted to something, well, I have to poke my eyes or turn my, bounce my eyes. I got to turn them away. You know, I can't do that. And it's like, we're really literally teaching disassociation from who we are as human beings. And that frightens me for, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. It's really interesting to hear you say like, or teaching disassociation. And I've never thought of it like that before that like so much of growing up in the church is that's actually what's being taught. And I think so much of what we're trying to do and our personal work for everyone around this table and what we're doing through these conversations is how do we do the reverse of that and becoming aware of our bodies, starting to trust ourselves, like re relearning in so many ways a healthy form of what it means to be human. It's kind of wild that this association word is kind of blowing my mind right now because when people disassociate and when we think of those as disorders, like in the mental health and medical community, that that's like something that really fractures or impairs somebody's ability to enjoy the full human experience. And so if we have like a culture, so purity culture that is designed to teach us to disassociate from our desire, disassociate from our bodies, I mean, of course we're going to be just like writhing with trauma. I mean, on some level, because when you're feeling really like starved of something, you know, there's different reactions to that, but like one reaction would be like overconsumption when you feel deprived, right? And some people, when they're ravenous, they don't have the ability to like gently care and nurture and tend to what's in front of them. They're just consuming because they're starving. It's like when you see movies of like people who've been starved and like they're given like a candy bar and they eat it like an animal, mm-hmm. you know, like they get pieces of the wrapper in the mouth, in their mouth and they're just, they look crazy, you know? And so like, I just feel like we've set so many people up to hurt themselves and one another. And I think, you know, people were having sexual trauma before purity culture. I mean, it's not, that's not a new thing, but I think human beings have been trying to understand sex and how sex works since we probably, I'm guessing we've been able to figure out that we can do it. (laughs) Probably so. You know, probably so. 
You know, I was this morning, I was thinking a little bit about, because I didn't grow up in purity culture. I had daughters that were growing up during that. So I wasn't truly, I was affected by it, but I wasn't. And I remember watching it, but I was watching it from afar because it wasn't me that it was being put on. I was already having sex. So, um, (laughs) but there's something similar to this. The purity culture has almost created a genocide of potential lost. It's killed off the potential of something that never had the opportunity to grow into fruition. Latifa, you made the statement that you made life choices based on the purity culture. Yes. Ashley, you said you made life choices based on the purity culture, what you'd been given. And like, we will never know what choices you might have made had you not been a part of the purity culture. We will never know that. And therefore, there's something that's been lost. And so therefore, going back to your question, Luke, I wonder if that's even some of the trauma that we're feeling is recognizing that something's been lost and we don't have language for what was lost because we don't know. I think part of what's been lost, you know, we've talked, we talk a lot about personal trauma from purity culture, but again, it's uh, these rules and regulations and behaviors that get set up is all about belonging to a certain group. We also have the trauma when you get expunged from the group, when you get thrown out of the group. And that's usually very insidious. You know, it's, sometimes it's really explicit, but many times this is kind of an implicit understanding that you no longer belong. So not only do you feel like you've made a huge mistake by having a sexual experience, now you're not safe anymore in the community. And that's a double That's a double trauma. I'm not sure which one is more damaging. I mean, they're both terrible to be called dangerous or unsafe. When you're doing something that's just normal to being a human being, it's heart-wrenching. And to also be considered a pariah, I mean, that's devastating. I mean, talk about traumatizing the traumatized. Yeah. You know? I think I've shared this before. No one told me growing up explicitly that masturbation was wrong. I don't remember anyone ever saying that explicitly, but when I was a little guy masturbating in my room afterwards, after I was done, I would imagine that there was a video camera up in my room that was turned on now and God could see that I was just not doing anything wrong. I was just That's hilarious. Have I shared that before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have, but yeah. I, it's worth sharing again. You know, like that's the implicit rule that you're not supposed to do something, even though I really don't. And now, I didn't grow up in the youth group, right? So I was aware from my parents mostly that sex was good, but it was good in marriage. Like the the message they always said to us kids were like, well, it's, my mom would say this, well, it just keeps getting better and better. You know, so like what we a didn't great get the message, message to that, get. Yeah. yeah. But it was also very much within the confines of marriage. That was so abundantly clear. I think it's interesting that your idea, at least as a child, of God was that God was watching you when you weren't doing anything wrong. Yeah. And the illustration you keep coming back to your for yourself when you make mistakes is that you're watching yourself make mistakes on yeah, TV. Yeah. You know, you see yourself on a TV mm-hmm. show, God watches you on a camera. I think that's a there's like a really interesting parallel yeah. there to like who's watching and yeah. who's and who's seeing what, you know. I think that's really 
I'm sure there's some dissociation around that. I've been calling it healthy detachment, but I wonder if there's some unhealthy dissociation as well, or at least it, maybe it started there. But that is interesting. God only sees you when you're good, and you only see yourself when well, you're messing up. Somehow yeah. in that in that little little boy, because that was the thing. I masturbated before hormones hit, and I it felt good. That's I didn't normal, have, right? I didn't have an exact. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's normal. Or not. That's what it's I did. It's normal to do that, and it's normal not to do that. There sure. is both no hand. normal with that. Okay, yeah. it's both ends. So, yeah. but what's interesting about that is that in my little boy mind, I controlled the on and off switch on that video camera. <laughs> you control God, basically. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> but it wasn't awesome, actually. It didn't mm. feel good. It didn't mm. feel like... It still felt shameful. It felt to, like well, hiding. And It's, it's yes. kind of like, no wonder you're a three then. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. That feels super tied to achievement and to... Yeah. How you're perceived. Yes. yes. That is... You were... Yeah, that is so... For all of us, we can find bits of ourselves in our childhood that represent. The other thing that comes to my mind is we talk about trauma, and I'm sure we've said this before, so it's redundant, but it's whack-a-mole, you know, that game whack-a-mole, like something comes up, desire, curiosity. Maybe it's the first time you feel attracted to the same gender and you, oh, you know, whack-a-mole, you hit that down. I remember a time when I was about 13, I was at church and I looked across the room and there was this very handsome older guy. I bet he was 32 or something like that. You know? <laughs> but he's but really I was, older. I was yeah. 13, you know? Yeah. So, And I remember finding him attractive, you know? And I didn't linger there too much, you know? But I knew internally, whack-a-mole, that's not something to explore. <laughs> you yeah. know, that would not, that's not something to explore. I share all those, or both of those stories as a way of saying, like, yeah, the those are pretty small is that trauma? Small T trauma? Maybe. I don't even know if it is. But it makes all these connections with all these other things, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think it's fair to say, too, I just want to make sure we highlight this. For one person, what is traumatic may not be traumatic to another human being. But trauma is when someone, when we feel out of control and we feel powered, being powered over. We are without voice. We lose any response. And that's where I think it's the normal responses are fight, flight, or freeze. And I think what's really important there is not to judge one person's trauma and say, oh, even we have the language of big T, little t. And yes, I know we need to use that to help people differentiate. But there's an element here of can we be present and attuned to, and I'm going to go back to that word, can we be attuned to what's really happening in real time for this person? And that starts in childhood, you guys. It really starts in childhood is helping children to be attuned to what they're experiencing. It's the parent's responsibility to be attuned to the child. It's not the child's responsibility to be attuned to the adult. But they learn very early on how to be attuned to the adult to get what they desire most. To survive. It's to survive. But it's love. It's like that's all they know is, wait, this is, they know they're, they don't know they're dependent they live within their dependence. So, you know, to go back to the question, like why is sex something that can cause like so much trauma? We've talked a lot this whole season about sex being the place where you find comfort. And I'm hearing you talk about like children, what do they need to survive? They'll trade anything 
right? So they'll do the parent's job for them or they'll perform or they'll hide or they'll, you know, whatever it is in order to hopefully get that comfort, hopefully get that love. And so it's just such an easy way to be wounded when sex is a place that we go to for comfort. I just, I've never thought about that before. That's making a lot more sense right now in my mind. Maybe somebody else can articulate that in a more linear fashion. Well, I I think you did a great job, Latifah. But here's at the core is as a human being, one of my deepest needs is to be comforted when there's pain. That's not being needy. That's a human need. I mean, I remember a time, a very poor parenting moment for me when I was tapped out. I had nothing left to give. And my one of my daughters needed me so desperately. And I she's crying. And I literally had to put her in the crib and walk away because I didn't have I was afraid of my depletedness. Did you go back for her at some point? Uh, yes, I did okay. go back for her at some point. But it was like being able to even recognize I was depleted. That was a sign of growth for me. Mm. I didn't have anything to give her that would have been good. But I had the presence of mind to go, this is not a good situation. I'm walking away. And it wasn't her. It wasn't her. She was being a baby. She had needs. I just had, I was tapped out. And that wasn't about her. That was about me. And I just think that there's something, how does that play over into sex? I think there's something really important to notice when we're depleted. Because a lot of times we go to sex as the thing to complete and fill us. And if we're coming into sex from a depleted stance, I think that is one of the things that creates more wounds as well. Hmm. So then how would you suggest, I'm just curious, as someone's feeling depleted, what's the road to being filled in order to, because like there's times with like my partner where I've been low and feeling like really depleted and then we have intimacy and it really helps me. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like. I can kind of like it releases some tension Mm -hmm. in my own body and in my own spirit. And I just feel more at ease. It doesn't necessarily solve the emotional problem I've been having or what I was sad about, but it did bring me comfort and Mm -hmm. that it kind of gave me a little leg, like raised my head above water, you know? So, but that, I would say that's a healthy awareness and attunement to your own recognizing that you're not going to him to try and consume and take so that you don't have to feel this. And I think that's what, because sex at the core elicits and releases such incredible feelings and such incredible emotions. And I mean, it has the potential to, and such incredible hormones in our body that are so healthy for our body. They're so healthy and they do bring that connectedness. But because of some of the things I see in my, the work I do, what I would say repeatedly is sex isn't the answer to your deep emotional problem, but your emotional need is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But what happens is when we go into an, a, sexu- a physical thing, when we're emotionally depleted, what ends up happening is we end up being further depleted. I'm thinking back to a story I shared in season one about an encounter I had with someone. And I was at a point in my singleness of being very emotionally needy. I was like being primed to feel like for like the next layer of work. But it was like I felt like in that experience I was going to him of – Am I enough? Like all of these questions Mm. that only I could actually answer for myself. And that was like the next bit of work that I could, that I needed to do, but I wasn't aware of it yet to your point. And I remember him saying to me, I can feel you're so hungry for connection. And it was like, did that make you feel embarrassed or what did that make you feel like? Kind of all of the things. It was like a piercing 
it was kind of one of those like out of body experiences because he was naming something that was so true. So I was actually for someone who we'd only seen each other for like a couple times, we, someone I knew from high school, that his awareness mm-hmm. to name that and then to respectfully like step back and not. I feel like there's those encounters you have and then the guy will like text along the way and it kind of like pops back up. But after that, that experience was done, there was no further engagement. And so what I was left with was. I need to step into this, mm. what was named. And mm. then it was like the next layer of really deep work for me. That was like the next year of life. But it felt like this invitation that came in many ways. And so there was definitely some embarrassment of like, oh my gosh, like how. I, I mean, and so that like hungry. you felt really seen. And yeah. I don't think you should have been embarrassed. Yeah. I want to say yeah. he was attuned yeah. enough to himself yeah. to be attuned to someone else. Mm-hmm. And not take advantage and of it. And not take advantage of he it, He was yeah. very respectful. It's kind of amazing. It, yeah. On both your fronts, honestly, yeah. that you yeah. even like took that as a cue to do some work as opposed to ignoring that and just keeping the same routine in place, mm-hmm. you know? But I just want to say, it's you're right, as far as like the difference between, I think it's a self-awareness part. Mm-hmm. It's a continual process of that. I mean, speaking of continual process, like that's the thing that I feel struck with too is by that question and by just the experience of, now getting near the end of three seasons of doing this show, two years of friendship with you all. And it's like, does it ever end? Like, it just feels like the work is never ending and it feels exhausting the whole time. And there's moments that are invigorating too, but like, I don't know when that question came through during the live event, I resonated so deeply with like, why is this everywhere? And will it always be so, you know? And I think maybe for me, the answer came down to like, one thing, Becky, which I think you may have said at the event was that it's really tied to the fact that we all have vulnerabilities in this area. This is one particular common vulnerability that we all share. The other is just that like, as long as there are power structures in place, as long as there's patriarchy, as long as there are people who think that they are entitled to that, which does not belong to them or entitled to treat people as objects. Yeah. as, As long as we are able to objectify human beings, then human beings will always be wounded in this area of their life. And I don't want that to be true. I want to feel like there's hope for the world to change. There's hope that like my niece, my nephews, my, you know, hopefully someday daughter don't have this experience that like this doesn't always have to just be something we take for granted in the world. But I don't know if that hope exists. I would love if you have any hope that you can offer. You know, I actually do have hope because I think we've never had a generation that has had the freedom to talk about gender, race, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse. There's probably other things I'm missing. I apologize. Different kinds of relationships. Yeah. We've never had that many conversations going on at the same time. And so my hope is, because I think there's threads in and through all of them. My generation, I think, was very much in the realm of like women having a voice in the church. I want to say in the church context, I lived that. That's what I lived. And I am so proud and so grateful for the women who went before me. And I'm so thankful for the places that I got to stand that made space for younger girls, that they won't face the thing I had to face. And at first it made me angry that I had to face that. So my hope is we're having conversation, we're having awareness, we're learning how to be attuned, we're learning to name trauma as trauma. There are things that are becoming dismantled that we're looking carefully as we reassemble some of them 
to notice the things that we've done in the past. And will there always be pain? Yes, there will always be pain. There will always be pain. But our job is not to prevent all pain. Our job is to help empower people to be able to move in and through pain and not just be holding pain. And I I have less years left than I've already lived. There's no way I'm living to 120. Never know, Becky. Science is advancing very quickly. I, I, but what I know is I believe that everything that we have been through, or I'll say just that I've been through, in some ways, in actually dealing and going into it, it's creating and cultivating landscape for other people to grow good things because of that. And I know that who I am, it's because of others who went before me and cultivated things that I got to plant seed in soil they cultivated that created new life. And that's why I have hope. Because I think for the first time, I mean, I got an email from somebody about how they helped their daughter to be able to say no to something that made her feel uncomfortable. What if that's happening? Even just that piece is women having a voice. Mm around their own bodies, that's going to change things. Little boys and little girls noticing that they have an attraction to the same gender or they're bisexual or whatever, and they notice that and they get to have, wait, I can experiment with language with this because there are people who have prepared the way for them to be able to suddenly have language versus the only option they have is to turn the camera off or suppress something. Mm. That gets me excited I want to be a part of helping create that language. I want to be a part of stumbling through it like we were talking earlier. I'm going to make mistakes in the midst of that, but I have hope that because I believe every human being at the core, there's goodness in them. We just sometimes have to dig for it. Hmm. Nerdy 30? Yeah. There's an ancient story and, you know, that we all, many of us know in the scriptures, the Garden of Eden, and it's a myth or it's a something, but the man and the woman find themselves at the tree and they reach of the fruit and they eat of it. And then, you know, we are told all hell breaks loose after that, they get kicked out of the garden. (laughs) And, you know, and that is one way of interpreting that story. Another way of interpreting that story is here's a garden that includes this tree that we don't know what it's about, but it's mysterious and good and evil. It's both. And it's in there. It's included in the garden. It's not removed. It's not not included. It's right there. And of course, the man and the woman, the people, the humans touch it and eat it. And then there is a presence, I think good presence, who helps them reintegrate into themselves, clothing them, helping them, not kicking them out, but helping them take the next logical step into life of growing up. And I think interpreting it the second way is extremely important if we're going to walk through, for anyone who needs to hang on to faith, and that's not everybody listening, I get that. And if you've given it all up, that is fine. If you need to hang on, go all the way back to that beginning and hang on to something that can bring you some hope and that can take you somewhere. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like do not keep believing in a dead end story. Yeah. 
Even, thank you. I, I love the garden story, but not the flannel graph version that I got growing up. It was so one-dimensional in so many ways. But the other thing, too, is the snake in that story, we are taught to fear the snake. And I was reading this, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. You had mentioned that, I think, this season. But in The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, one of the things she points out is, and I, I knew this and I forgot it. I, it just bums me out. The snake has always been the symbol of wisdom. And I just want to say in that story, and thank you, Steve, for sharing that, because I think there's so much that has been written, interpreted for us, that we've written into our Christian experience yes. that I think isn't really, it's like, I always think of that princess bride. I love princess bride. Yeah. I don't think that means what you think it means, you know? <laughs> no, and it's no, like, no. I'm like, that's inconceivable mm. that actually, what if the snake was there for wisdom? Because yes. the thing I think of the garden is, yeah, that'd have been great just to stay in the garden. But would it have? No, because they wouldn't. They can't grow up. You can't grow up. If there's not the possibility, if there's not mystery, if there's not the presence. Yeah, like the symbol and, of awakening. Yes. Which I is kind of rad. It is so. Yeah. And so I think that there's something that so much of what my Christian faith was built on is that we were a disappointment to God. Yeah. And I just think that's bullshit. I think God is delighted when... She ate that apple. Maybe was God ready for her to do that? I don't know. But I think that there was a delight. Oh, there's curiosity there. I made that curiosity. And how we look at what we've been taught is so very important. And I don't think the Bible's just a bunch of stories for us just to look at from afar. I think they're actually ones to participate in. And you know, I felt like Moses at times, like out in the desert, wandering around and having no clue what I'm supposed to do and feeling like, dang it. I just think that we need to allow ourselves to not use the Bible as a textbook, but instead see it as this story that's still going on and it's still, things are still happening. So for me, I know that my faith is, will always be a part of me. But I'm allowing myself to enter into what I would call two and three dimensions of when I read it, I get curious, I get angry. And I have to be honest, I don't read it very often, except when I'm supposed to preach. That's kind of a bad confession to make right in front of my pastor, but you know. Anyway. I don't think he cares. No. You know, I think... Did you have something, Ashley? I just had a couple of follow-ups to that because I think about, I can't remember if it was Rabbi Allen, I learned this from, or Larry Hawk, but in the Jewish faith, there isn't a capital F, the fall. Like that's the Christian overlay to yes. Genesis 3. And there's kind of this understanding in the Jewish tradition that God kind of like, that wasn't a surprise. Like it just kind of happened. Like you will screw up. It's just part of the human experience. And that kind of just blew my mind again because back to like how much we start our story Genesis 3 versus Genesis 1 you know and that piece of it and then I along with that I just when you say I read it in three dimensions isn't there the there's four layers of the way that the text can be read I think you're right I just am not that enlightened yeah it's midrash Mid, yes. you're talking about midrash yeah in 30 seconds the Jewish way of understanding scripture is midrash is a word that comes from derash, which means a curious search. That's what it means. 
when our Jewish brothers and sisters and siblings read the scriptures and they come to something that they don't understand, or they don't say, oh, that's so stupid. They go into debate for years and years and years about what it could mean and what it doesn't mean. And they write new understandings about interpretations. And so it's always being interpreted. It's always being reinterpreted. They believe when you sit down and open up Torah that God is speaking at Mount Sinai again. And so it's live. It's real time. It's right now. It's happening now. It didn't just happen back then. And I think that's a much better way of understanding if you're going to take the time to try to understand the scriptures, which are so filled with stuff. It's just, well, yeah. I was going to say for my, me, myself, and I, and maybe anybody that's listening where scripture is not really a thing mm-hmm. that we care to invest a lot of time in anymore. <laughs> you can say what you mean. <laughs> that is what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, anytime. <laughs> yeah, like anytime. But it's not any less important to me than other oral traditions or other stories mm-hmm. that that share something about our history and our understanding of how we worked and have been working. But one thing that I've really been enjoying is looking at nature and looking at patterns. So like scientists will look at patterns and if patterns repeat to prove a theory, they'll test it by setting up the same pattern and seeing if it continues to like fractal out. So like fractals is another thing. It's just like the same shape opening up and opening up and opening up, which is like really cool. And so when I think about curiosity, curiosity is the willingness to step into what is unknown to discover something new. And I would say that maybe you have an idea of what you'll find. Maybe you don't, but it's the adventure. It's not knowing, you know, and one of the things that I love about black holes, and I discussed this on an earlier episode is, you know, at the center of every galaxy is a black hole. Like that's something they've learned and discovered. And what's happening is that black hole is pulling the entire galaxy into itself And now that we know that they have seen like light and movement on the other side of the black hole, we know it's going somewhere else. And so when I think about that, that is just mind blowing. I know, but it's the repeat of the pattern, which is what I love. And the repeat of the pattern is whether we like it or not, we're all being pulled into the unknown and we don't know what we're going to discover and we can postulate and we can guess, or we can declare that we can predict or see the future. But the truth is we just won't know till we get there. And it's also kind of become recently one of my favorite ideas of justice is that no matter what we do, we'll be pulled in and through and then converted into the next thing. So you could call that learning lessons. You could call that making something whole or bringing something into wholeness, which is what I like as opposed to annihilation. It is healing what is broken. It is making something whole that has been broken. And so the idea that, you know, whether we want to or not, we're all going in the same spaceship called earth through the portal of the black hole to the next thing. And we can either go in like curious and with eyes open and excitement without judgment and with like open hearts and minds, or we can go in kicking and screaming (laughs) with our eyes closed and ears plugged, determining we know where we are and where we've been and where we're going. I just, the curiosity fractal is something I just occurred to me, which I really like when you said she ate the apple because she was curious. And your guess is that God delighted in her curiosity. And it just, I wish that I would have delighted in my curiosity more because I am insatiably curious. Mm-hmm. And now I like, don't think it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger and I was sitting in pews and sitting in church and I'm like, well, okay, 
if God created me and Jesus who created God, and the first thing they did was say, we don't ask those questions. Like, that's a lot of inner monologue I had to carry by myself for a long time. And it's just, it's a lot more fun to be curious with people. Oh, that's so good. And I think we're designed to be curious with people. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really boring just being curious. Well, no, maybe I guess it's good to be curious alone too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, curious. it's, it's just all. And just... then Becky drifted off <laughs> <laughs> through the black hole. No, but I'm just unknown. thinking about. Right. I'm curious, wait all the time by myself, but then I'm just. But it is so fun to get to be curious with other people. But I want to say that also can be challenging mm-hmm. because that's where I think a lot of tension comes in because people don't. Then people don't agree. Well, the only time it's challenging is when you have something at stake for what you think is on the other side of the unknown. Oh, that's true. So if I don't have something at stake, I can be along for the ride and I'm open to the discovery process. And this really, oh man, this is really pulling me full circle because when you have something at stake, like I'm going to go to hell, then that's really going to shape how you treat yourself and those around you, how you treat your body, all the decisions I made in my life that I would do differently now, even though I like my life now, I'm glad I'm here, but Lucas. (laughs) So there needs to be a Lucas jingle to this. Just, it's like a hallelujah chorus, but just with Lucas. Um, but yeah, when there's something at stake, curiosity becomes a lot riskier and a lot scarier. And now I'm realizing why I'm agitating so many people is because I'm like being publicly curious Mm -hmm. and I guess that's okay. I get it. You know, it's not fun. But, but I get it. It's fun for me to be curious. It's not fun for them to have something at stake. Right. And yet, what if, like the, you were talking black holes, the only way they discovered everything they discovered was because they were curious. And they already had a theory. But once they got in there, they had to keep letting go of that theory. And they had to keep letting go of that. And that goes back to what you were talking about in the last episode. You'd seen the galaxy one way. And then suddenly when you saw that, you you couldn't go back. Yeah. When we ended that episode, I kept thinking like, because we were talking about the idea of parents receiving their kids coming out or sort of introducing them to a world they weren't. And I kept thinking like, oh, it's like they got blasted off into space without realizing that it was going to happen. And I think that's maybe sort of what you're talking about is like you're exploring your curiosity in a way in front of people who are, are not interested in exploring their curiosity. They don't even want to be on the spaceship. They have, they do have something <laughs> at stake. And I think that's incredibly insightful. Like yeah. I'm the whole time you were talking, I was just like, God, she's so smart. Like <laughs> I was just like admiring you, but it's also that like, how, they're how getting the little... blasted into a galaxy and they're not, they weren't looking for that. So like, yeah. of course it's terrifying. So they're them. grasping and trying to hang on to something that yeah. they know to be true instead of in looking out the window and yeah, there's no What's wonder. There you seeing? can't, it can't be one. There can only be, maybe not. It's, it's fear, fear and wonder. Like it's, it, maybe it's just a spectrum of fear and mm-hmm. wonder. And, and for some people, the reaction is going to be fear. The thing you were just describing, Becky, of like, I've had that experience. There's a songwriter who I followed since I was a teenager. That every, Paris. What's that? Twilight <laughs> Paris. <laughs> that every time they would release an album, they would say things on it that just pissed me off that it's like that just like it, it did damage I could because it, it forced me to confront ideas that I had and things that I had been 
taught my whole life. Mm. And so I'd get really upset and I'd be like, I'm not ever listening again. That's what David Bazan did to me. And then like mm. six months in, I'd be like, God, I love that record. And I, I can't believe that I didn't have those questions before. They released another album. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. You know what I'm saying? Like I had that experience over and over and over with this artist. And ultimately, like they were dragging me kicking and screaming yeah. into a mystery that I just wasn't ready for. Right. And I'm so, so, so thankful that they did because along the way, I learned to love the mystery. Along the way, I shifted on the spectrum from fear to wonder. And now I feel like I exist fully in that space of like, I, I, I just want the mystery. I want to go wander in space. I want to see all of the stars. I want, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's like, we're going so we can either enjoy the ride yeah. Yeah. or go kicking and screaming. It's like yeah. when you're a kid and you're like freaking out in the backseat of the car. Like, I'll and give you something to cry about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your parents <laughs> like, you know, you're the one like deciding what kind of trip you're having right now, you know, but we're still going to the destination. You're still going to get there. I'd just rather have a lot of fun and have a lot more sex on the way there. I'm just thinking of space and sex right now. Uh, the I'm image thinking, in my head of like you, you in the backseat of your parents' space? car. No, like, but you know what I like, say? Like, and zero gravity. How would you do that? I think that would be... still push against You probably need I a lot of straps and levers. I think <laughs> the, there's a lot of bodies holding. I think, we're coming, I think the train's coming <laughs> off the tracks. <laughs> I will say, I mean, we're talking about general curiosity, spiritual curiosity, but it is a sex podcast. And I think it would be also good to tie it to sexual curiosity. curiosity. Like when I think about like even the, the act of intimacy, like when I'm with my partner, it's different every time. We're not robots. Like, and I think the times where I get in trouble in our relationship, like in intimacy is when I have some sort of expectation of how it's going to go. Like we talked about initiation in the, like the last episode. Like if I initiate this way, then my expectation is it goes X, Y, and Z. And I think it's one thing to like do something with an expectant result. It's kind of what we're talking about going through the black hole into the unknown. It's another thing to like show up with your vulnerability and then be curious about what could happen next. And I think that would make intimacy, the actual act of having sex, more fun because it could be like, okay, I'm going to go here now. Instead of like, when I go here, I know I'm going to get this thing. Or like when he goes here or she goes here, like I know this thing's going to happen. Or you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like just actually letting each thing lead to the next thing. That feels like a lot more like titillating. That's actually what I would call presence. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, but I think it's presence and learning how to be present because one of the things that is important to notice, I mean, not always does sex end in climax. It just doesn't yeah. you guys i it doesn't have to and it, it can still be so to, enjoyable but it's is what's the main goal is the goal to orgasm or is the goal to create oneness together yeah and i think there's something beautiful about that wanting together that that because there's no other way that we actually get to experience that intersection and overlap of two human beings that are yeah. so present in something i just would nuance that maybe to pursue oneness instead of create oneness. Creating mm. oneness feels so like, then that is the goal and I either did it or not, you know? Oh, pursue. And, yeah, but, that's better. Because yeah. I can go there, you know? And I think I love my wife and she loves me. I, I don't know that every time we are intimate that we're 
creating oneness. Sometimes we are. Hopefully we're pursuing that over and over again. I like the word pursuing it versus creating it because I do want to pursue. You know, it's interesting. Part of the experience of sex is to be surprised. Which means that you're not holding on to an expectation. You're you're being present. You're just letting the next thing come. Because Mm. we don't always know what's in our bodies that needs to be released. And that's when we get to choose to be attuned to what is being released. And I say that because sex has this incredible capacity to heal so much in our bodies. There are so many good, healthy things that sex does for our body. And so if something has that kind of power to be able to create healing, to create goodness in us, it's like we need to kind of lay down our expectations so we can receive what our body needs in those moments too. And sex is all of it. Sex is the cuddling, sex is the touching, sex is the foreplay. It's the looking at one another. It's the just the communicating. It's not just the, it's not just the, the the climax. It's not just the orgasm. And I just want to keep coming back to that because it's so easy for me to even think when people say sex, because I've been so trained that, so I'm like, Oh no, what if I'm single and I'm not having like what I like to call PIV, but apparently is PVI, <laughs> which is like penis and vagina. PIV pen- is what the VIPs call it. So. Oh, huzzah. Like, no, we need t-shirts. Yeah, everything is sex. Exactly. <laughs> everything. But like, I mean, I think what you're really saying is like everybody needs comfort. And what I love about sex is that there's a myriad of ways to receive this comfort. It's not just this one thing that I was told this is what it is. This is what to avoid. This is where everything is going. So I just think with that and in line with that, I'm still hung up on the create oneness versus pursue oneness. And like the word that I want to say is like cultivate oneness because the other thing is with the, I mean, I feel you, Steve, on the create feeling like a thing that as threes we can achieve or not achieve. But it's also not, the oneness isn't a thing, I don't think, that happens in each individual moment of intimacy. What we're talking about is like, in all of this, we are cultivating oneness. So in any given sexual encounter, we're still doing the work. We're not just doing it until we're finished. We're still doing the work of that oneness in that intimate relationship. I mean, that's good. I like that. That is really good. And when we talk about repeating patterns, if you think about the collective and us all being connected to like earth and God and each other, what is that? It's cultivating oneness or people call the the conscious, what is that? The consciousness, the collective. collective, it's cultivating oneness. And if everything really is a pattern and a, a, like a fractal or a mirror of the next thing, well, that makes, that's really beautiful. Like if you put practice into cultivating oneness with yourself and the person you're with, chances are that that practice will start to fractal out or repeat in other areas of your life. And like, imagine the possibilities of what you could notice like along that ride. If that happens, I mean, that's, that's pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. This episode of fun parts was produced, edited and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. Nerdy 30 and PDA were composed and produced by Latifa Alatas. And other songs from this episode were licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. 
Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. It's funny, right before we started recording this particular episode, Becky, you mentioned a story and you said, have I told y'all that story? And it's a story you've told us every time we've been together. <laughs> but it's a good story. I'm old. I'm over 16. I can't remember. But that's not, but that's not the point. Story. The point is it, it is worth re-saying. Like, it's worth revisiting things. It's like, I don't know. I think that's just part of dialogue is that, like, things are going to keep coming up. Like, if the idea is for us to always have something new to say, then I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in making this. Thank you.